Welcome to Making the Bay Historian, a podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today I'm going to be giving you the last uh, big episode on the 19th century in general, where I'm going to be talking about the history of civil society. And I'll be honest, I really dragged my feet on making this episode. It did not come easy to me. The reason is that even though I'm able to make a good timeline of all of these events, that I have some sort of story, I'm having a lot of trouble making a really big case for it. And I think that I do. I think that this story of civil society in the 19th century is really key to what I think the 19th century is. And I need to be able to figure out a way to express it in a concrete and upfront manner. But I I just can't think my way through it. It might be that I'm distracted by the current news right now. Uh, The date today is May 9th, 2017. Uh, There is weird political stuff happening in America, like there has been for a long while. Uh, And also, I think that just because I'm not reading as much anymore, because I'm doing more thinking, my brain is taking a little bit of a vacation. The past two days, I've done something very uncharacteristic uh, of me, and I have taken a nap in the middle of the afternoon. Uh, I think that my body and my mind is just kind of repairing itself uh, after the big push towards the final exams. That being said, all of that, like, apology up front, I'm going to try to give a account of 19th century civil society. I'm going to start off with a thumbnail sketch, then I'm going to talk about three big points that I want to make uh, from this discussion of civil society. And then I'm going to give just a timeline. I'm going to give a number of dates that tells the story. I think that it tells a whole coherent story, but I am not sure I know exactly how to characterize it. So if you have any great ideas, if you're able to repeat back to me this story to me in more clear a way, uh, please tell me. Tweet at me at at MackieTeacher, M-A-C-K-I-E-T-A-C-H-E-R, or send me some sort of note otherwise. So I think that civil society in the 19th century is important because it's a a way of seeing the wider trend of organizations getting bigger, more powerful, and more anonymous over the 19th century due to the spread of new ways of moving people and new ways of moving information that come about through the new economy created through fossil fuel energy. And this is important because civil society forms the groundwork of lots of people's daily lives. It's one of the key material sites that allow people to get information about the wider world and allow people to make their own personal identities. So this shift has three big points. The power and the scope of organizations increase. We can see this, for example, by the rise in the absolute number of civil society organizations. We can also see this in the fact that most of these civil society organizations become increasingly national and international, whereas in the 18th century, civil society organizations are primarily local. Most of them are centered in big cities, and they uh, deal mostly with local concerns. In the 19th century, most civil society organizations are organized on a national branch model, where there is a central central 
office in Manchester or Birmingham or London or Edinburgh or Boston. And then there's lots of branch offices that deal with the local stuff. And even purely local civil society organizations might see themselves as part of a wider organizational field. For example, statistical societies that were operating in particular cities would see themselves as not simply the Manchester Statistical Society or the London Statistical Society, but as representatives of a wider trend of statistical societies. The second big point is that civil society becomes domesticated. The beginning of our story, as you will see, is a big crisis of what civil society should be. People worry about it because they realize suddenly that the massive increase in daily participation in civil society creates an alternative form of legitimating politics that threatens to compete with uh, whatever you think of as the Ancien Regime, the confessional state or parliament and, or king in parliament or whatever. And uh, this leads to a massive amount of repression on one hand, and on the other hand, a kind of chilling effect of uh, a lot of different kinds of speech being blocked out of civil society. Over the 19th century, civil society gets less scary. It doesn't get defanged per se, but it becomes more legitimate. Uh, people recognize that civil society can produce information about social problems and social conditions, and it can propose solutions for these things. People also uh, rely on civil society to disseminate uh, information about society and the state. Uh, people send out uh, uh publications to civil society organizations to disseminate them, for instance. And also, it's relied upon sometimes to actually serve as the solution to some of these problems. However, uh, this changes over the 19th century, and civil society becomes increasingly a way of producing information and of petitioning the state rather than as a solution in its own right. Now, the third uh, point is that as civil society gets more powerful, as it becomes more accepted, the role of individuals in actual organizations decreases. There is a rise of professionalization in civil society, the rise of what I call virtual identification, where people simply pay a fee to their civil society organization and then that's it. Um, and also the rise of mass sociability, the rise of a sense of people as not just individuals, but as a horde, as classes, as groups. But at the same time, civil society organizations become increasingly important at forming individuals' translocal identities. This is not simply a story of working class people understanding that they're working class through their participation in working class politics. It's also a story of other people understanding that they are part of wider movements. And these are overlapping. People belong to multiple civil society organizations, people belong to multiple social circles, people belong belong to multiple classes at once. Uh, this is gentlemen's clubs that make people, you know, understand themselves as elites. This is socialist movements that organize uh, the new kinds of political identification through uh, actual social activities like bike riding clubs and drinking clubs and stuff like that. Now people see the project of making society better is not simply this act of reform where people can reach down and solve stuff instantly, but that the act of reform necessitates a 
uh, act of relying on the allegiance of the people, of generating some sort of solidarity amongst these people, of creating civil society organizations first through uh, or everyday activities. So now I'm going to go into a timeline. We're going to start with 1793. This is uh, the turning point of the French Revolution. Um, and this leads to massive fears in the British body politic about civil society organizations. Here's things like London Corresponding Society and the Society for Constitutional Inf Information, which have been churning around for decades in some form or another, but suddenly become the target of uh, public concern. Because people see in France these same sorts of societies as leading to alternative poles of social organization that eventually, uh, well, actually very suddenly, displace the state. And people don't like it. Well, some people like it. Uh, some people want to make Jacobin clubs like in France, in Britain. But the powers that be get very worried. There's the passage of the two acts, the Seditious Meeting Acts and the Treason Acts in 1795. There's treason charges against the London Corresponding Society in the same year. Um, and there's the combination laws in 1799 that limit trade union involvement. All of this limits a certain kind of radical working class civil society. On the other hand, there is a movement amongst, let's say, more loyalist civil society to really double down on the loyalism. We can look at this uh, from the perspective of the Masons. The Masons in the 18th century are about as liberal a, a civil society organization as you would want. They uh, are fairly open to people of mul multiple classes talking with one another. They're a little bit deistic. They're exciting. Um, However, in, 17, in the late 1790s, the Masons uh, doubled down on their loyalism. Uh, for a while, they've had a rule that people cannot discuss political matters in the Masons, that these are bracketed out so that people can discuss important things about, I don't know, deism and political theory. After this chilling effect of, of the two acts and the treason charges of the LCS, the Masons change their rule. They still bar all political discussion except political discussion that supports the king. They now allow loyal healths to the king. And this is a drastic change, and it changes their composition. 18th century Masons are relatively open. 19th century Masons are jingoistic, militaristic, loyalistic, right-wing, we might say. Our next moments happen in 1815 to 1820, after the Napoleonic Wars. The story here is that you get a lot of economic dislocation and the return of lots of well-trained, well-armed men who are using the uh, functions of civil society to make new kinds of political claims. The big moment are swing riots, Luddism, and Peterloo. Peterloo is this moment in 1819 when a public demonstration in support of changing the way uh, Parliament represents people is crushed by armed 
uh, government forces, killing a small handful of people and becoming a symbol of repression. Um, in the same year, you get the passage of the Sixth Acts, which are meant to limit civil society. These are the Training Prevention Act, which basically means that people can't have private militias, Seizure of Arms Act, which means that you take away all those weapons that the well-armed demob soldiers have, the Misdemeanors Act, Seditious Meetings Prevention Act, which does what it says on the tin, Blasphemous and Seditious Libel Acts, which means that uh, there is now a greater control over what's said in the public sphere, and finally, the Newspapers and Stamp Duties Acts, which jacks up the prices of published uh, materials, uh, what Cobbett called taxes on knowledge. This actually works. Um, civil society is tamed. There's a, a muzzle put upon it. Um, in 1824, uh, the muzzle was briefly taken off and the combination laws, which uh, were meant to stop uh, trade union activity, uh, are repealed. Um, there leads to massive strikes, which leads in 1825 to the combination laws being passed again with some revisions, allowing limited trade union activity. The next big moment, however, is the return of the repressed. Starting in about 1827 or so, a collection of radical Tories, of middle-class reformers, of working-class artisans get together and through a bunch of uh, civil societies and uh, newspapers and publications and petitions start to push for reform. We think of this usually as parliamentary reform that culminates in the 1832 Reform Act, but it means really reform in general, and tons of stuff get reformed. You get uh, not only the reform of parliament, but you get the abolition of slavery in 1833, you get the repeal of the Test and Corporations Acts in 1828, you get Catholic emancipation in 1829, and there's a ton more on the table. There's uh, policies to reform the currency, uh, policies to reform civil society, but this is not an unalloyed victory for this strange uh, combination of radicals and Tories and working class people. We might see it as a betrayal of the working class by the middle class. After the Reform Act is passed, then you start to get more limits put on. You get the Met Police Act in 1833, which creates the model for uh, what will become the National Police. And maybe even more emblematically, in 1834, you get the passage of the New Poor Law. And this is repressive, as repressive as anything else that happens in uh, all of our discussions. It uh, is meant to reform the way that British people handle what we might call welfare. Uh, instead of offering outdoor relief, which is giving people money and then letting them buy food, this is supposed to limit all relief to relief in workhouses. The reason for it is simple. Britain is spending a ton of money on poor relief. Uh, I can't, I don't have the figures on me right now, but uh, they spend more than any other country at this time. And it's kind of an appeal towards the middle classes, who were one of the big constituencies uh, of the time, the ratepayers, we might call them, who actually spend money on the local rates, that government is going to reform, that the old era is over, and now there's going to be a tightening of the belt. Of course, it hurts 
the vast majority of people who do not pay rates and instead might at some point in their life rely on the poor laws, because the workhouses are not fun places. This leads in uh, the 1830s and 40s to two parallel developments. One is uh, what we might think of as more middle class uh, agitation to further this reform of government, to further the sweeping out of old traditions in favor of cheaper, more efficient, more rational ways of doing things. And that we can sum up in the Anti-Corn Law League, which gives us uh, the great uh, newspaper today, The Economist, which is, I'm not being facetious about that, it's actually a great newspaper. On the other hand, you get a continuation of working class attempts to uh, reform political representation. And you get the, the Chartists, whose uh, big appeal is the People's Charter that calls for universal manhood suffrage, payment of uh, members of parliament, secret ballots, all of these things that we now take as democratic uh, reforms. And it motivates this by massive demonstrations, by the spread of cheap newspapers containing these ideas, by petitions, by the threat of physical force, the idea that you can, through overwhelming numbers, change society. However, the Corn Law League people succeed. The Corn Law is repealed in 1844, uh, leading to what we might think of as the era of free trade and cheap government. But Chartism, despite a number of incredibly large demonstrations, fizzles out. From 1840 or so to 1870, we might think of civil society as moving from a form of government to now reforming society itself. Civil society organizations are now a lot more focused on moral reform, on local reform, on you know actually reforming people. We have things like temperance campaigns that are meant to reform the lower classes through giving them good middle-class values of temperance. And that doesn't mean just not drinking, it means having self-control. Uh, other reform uh, activities are reforms of prostitution, reforms of education, like the ragged school movement, um, and uh, civil society organizations that exist to create information about society itself, like the rise of the statistical societies. And we might see this as happening because of improved economic conditions. There's simply less for people to get upset about as Britain goes into an unalloyed bloom, uh, boom economically until the 70s. Some radical writers have described this as an age of servility, where the working classes uh, led by the you know, labor aristocrats of skilled workers are generally not opposed to the status quo. This changes a bit in the 1870s. In 1868, you get the first trade union congress, which we can maybe think of as the beginning of the national labor movement. It's modeled on the Social Sciences Association uh, and only later turns on into a pressure group. And what we might see here is after the Great Depression of 1873, people start to realize that uh, this attempt of local reform where you, you know, assume that all that needs to happen is that people uh, get exposed to the self-regulating market, learn how to be good middle class people, work hard, and then everything will get better. 
after these massive structural uh, uh, crises of uh, the um, 1865 uh, cotton famine, the 1873 uh, depression, people realize that that individuals sometimes don't have control, that there's sometimes not a lot that civil society can do on its own on a local basis. Action has to be taken at much larger scales. And we get two different developments uh, in the 70s. The first is, let's say, uh, legitimate politics. Uh, after the 1867 Reform Act, which gives a much wider franchise to people living in cities, you get political parties creating their own national civ branch uh, civil society organizations to get people to identify with their party uh, so that they'll vote for that party in the election. We can think of it as like modern identity politics, where uh, we think of pe people as Democrats and Republicans, not simply legislators, but actual voters. This is done through things like the Primrose League, the Conservative Party's uh, uh, political league that sought to actually get people to identify with Disraeli and the Conservatives. On the other hand, we get the creation of new kinds of working class politics. And the, for the first time in this entire discussion, I actually don't feel bad about using the word working class because they, uh, at the people I'm talking about, would use the word working class to describe themselves. The big movement here is the incorporation of unskilled laborers into the uh, uh, working people's movements. Before this time, most trade unions were uh, skilled workers who sought to simply protect their uh, particular corner of the skilled trades from outsiders. However, now people start to see all of uh, working people's welfare as being similarly linked. And the problem is, is that this includes not just the labor aristocracy of people who are actually skilled and might read and might have a higher standard of living and might be frankly more intelligent and hardworking, but also the unskilled workers, the masses, this presents a problem of organization. The old method of trade unions of striking doesn't work with unskilled laborers. If you have all the skilled trade striking, well, you have a problem as an employer because you can't get more engineers, you can't get more dock workers, you can't get more coal miners. Unskilled workers, however, are literally a dime a dozen. If you have all of the matchstick girls, all of the girls who apply phosphorus to matches, deeply dangerous job, deeply difficult, well, if they strike, fine. There's far more urchins on the street who will make matchsticks. To actually generate change, the trade unions need to adopt a new strategy, and that is the picket line. And that requires much greater organization. It requires the trade unions to generate more money so that they can support longer strikes. And it makes trade unions look for strikes not just in particular industries, but wide general strikes that participate for national causes. But I don't want to identify the 1870s where uh, the first... Uh, uh, big unskilled strikes happen as the moment where everything changes. I want to point out instead the late 1880s, 1889 in particular, where you get strikes of dock workers and coal miners. 
Here is where the labor movement learns its political power. Why? Because these strikes don't hit at the margins of capitalism, they hit at the very center, at the places where capitalism gets its energy, through the coal mines, and where capitalism gets its money, through the shipping of goods in the docks. This is the moment when uh, the civil society organizations, the trade unions, recognize what they actually have to do to change things. And after the 1880s, we get one final move. Before, civil society organizations are seeking to generate information about the problems that they're uh, looking to solve. Uh, they're seeking to create community just as an ends for itself. And uh, they're seeking to reform society from the ground up. After 1880, a lot of this changes. And a lot of what civil societies do is marshal resources in order to petition the government. The government, the state, is now seen as responsible for a lot of uh, the welfare uh, 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 provisioning that used to be thought of as resting with the localities or with civil society itself. Um, maybe a key point here would be the 1887 Reform Act, uh, which extends the borough franchise to everybody and leads to politicians having to make bigger claims. That might be a convenient moment for this shift. After this, the state is now the big target of civil society activism. Pressure groups now uh, want to reform people through the state. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. Uh, tomorrow we will be back with stuff on uh, urban life and urban culture. Thanks to Jonathan Lear for the music. Thanks to Duncan Barton for the image. And thank you if you tweet me at at Teacher and give me a question that I might get on my exams. Uh, and thanks for listening if you are listening. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, drop me a line, do all those things that you do with things on the internet that you like. I'll see you guys tomorrow.